0: and a leader in pelvic health. And we're gonna have some fun along the way. Join us as we rise together. We're Jesse and Nicole Cozine, founders of Pelvic Sanity Physical Therapy and the creators of the Pelvic PT Huddle. And this is Pelvic PT Rising.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Pelvic PT Rising Podcast with Jesse and Nicole Cozine. Hey, Nicole. Hello. I know you are so excited for this conversation with a true pioneer in the field. I'm going to kick it to you, Nicole, to introduce our guest.
0: This, ladies and gentlemen, is Kathy Wallace. And Kathy, thank you so much for being here. I'm super stoked to have this conversation with you. I have so many questions, and I think that, that we can pick your brain quite a bit about just the progress that pelvic floor physical therapy has made in the field. But first I'm going to actually ask you to just go ahead and give every, I mean, everybody should know Kathy, but just in case they don't, can you go ahead and just give yourself a little introduction?
2: Wow. I mean, there's the brief elevator speech, or there's the long version. So, thank you for inviting me. And it's a delight to kind of reflect on my 45 years as a physical therapist. And I started in about 86 being interested, but I tell people I started in 1988. But physical therapy has always been to me, a challenge and an opportunity for creativity. And at one time, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. At one time, I thought I wanted to be maybe a a PE teacher or something, but I'm terribly uncoordinated. (laughs) My (laughs) ideas of movement are best observed rather than done. And so this process of being challenged in the field you know, I started as a cardiopulmonary physical therapist. And because of that, I think there's a lot of background and, and ideas and thoughts. And that's where I actually got a certification. And that's where I also decided that certification might not be the best route for every person and everything because I was meeting the needs or the requirements of what somebody else thought was most important, rather than what I always thought was most important. So Anyway, yeah, we're gonna get back that, to that because I. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. Okay, but a okay, whole so- other <laughs> podcast, Yeah, but the idea of teaching and training and learning, I was motivated by my own personal childbirth educator. I'm lucky enough to have had a childbirth experience that went like very well. And the midwife said to me, that's the most one of the most beautiful births I've ever seen. And, you know, here I am sitting there going, but look at my body. Look <laughs> what's, what's happening? And I, I'm not sure this is beautiful. <laughs> and, I, you know, I had a few questions, but I didn't really have any problems. But I was I'm in Seattle and a premier childbirth educator who's probably in her 90s now, Penny Simpkin, who wrote Pregnancy, Childbirth, and the Newborn, was my personal childbirth educator. And she knew I was a PT. And she came up to me and said, there's all these women with problems, and can't you do something? And I sort of rose to the challenge of like, that's interesting. And in my clinicals, very early on, when yeah, back in the 70s, I actually had a brief moment with biofeedback. Okay. And so my clinic was interested in engaging biofeedback for stress management, pain, and I saw this rising interest in the pelvic floor with biofeedback, and I thought, well, that's a way to start doing this it's a start. It's not the whole picture. But the concept of like getting motivated and doing things, I worked in a wonderful medical center that allowed me to develop a program. And I had lots of time and lots of resources. I went to market and talked to the OBGYNs about biofeedback incontinence, because that's what was happening in the late 80s, and they referred me a pain patient. (laughs) So it was like, huh, I guess I have to think outside the box. And I believe that sometimes I went to a school that was very much based on no recipes, but based on foundations and based on knowledge. And you have to go back to the basics, understand the basics, and always apply it. So I kind of did that. And this woman that had chronic pelvic pain, all I did was hook her up to the biofeedback and show her her muscle tension. And she looked at me and said, everybody's been telling me how to relax. You just showed me how to relax. And the rest was kind of history. It was like, oh, okay. (laughs) That's a step. That's a step in the right direction. So, I mean, I could go on with little stories and things, but I think the other important thing was obviously biofeedback is not the only thing, but it was a foundation for some of us to get started. Elizabeth Noble and the section on OBGYN, I believe that was 1977. Sorry if I'm not great on my dates, was establishing some things and. I went to my first combined sections meeting because, you know, we don't have, we don't have social media. I mean, we didn't have phones with answering machines. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> if you call somebody and they're not there, you don't talk to them. <laughs> you have to keep calling back. <laughs> so it's like, okay, a meeting is a really good place to go <laughs> to meet somebody. And I mean, I think people lose sight of like, the personal interaction, I think we we really appreciate that now with the last in 2020 and and how you know interpersonal communication is so important. And but anyway, the whole idea was that I got motivated by a group of people in a combined sections meeting. I'm a lifetime member of the APTA. I strongly believe that I don't have the personal effort to always do all the political and advocacy things we need. But I do believe that any advice to a new therapist or ongoing therapist is that we don't always realize what our political and advocacy groups do for us. And I think that it's a lifelong support thing that we should be doing. Anyway, I've been involved with the APTA and the first course happened, you know, I just said, I think it, we should put together some people and I want more people because I want to learn more things that I organize. The first course that I organized, I know that um, Rhonda Cotterinas and Jill Boisinot were doing a course back in the late 80s as well. It was a week long. Our first pelvic floor course that Holly and I did was in 1993. I had met her at a combined sections meeting and realized that more than one opinion is really important when you're trying to create concepts and ideas and share them with people. And so I had my background somewhat in biofeedback and manual therapies. Holly's was strong in manual therapy and Holly actually worked with Elizabeth Noble. So yeah. there was some really good blending of ideas and the, the years of spending time with Holly Herman and and talking about concepts and ideas and how you might present something that makes sense is really met all my driving needs of challenge and creativity. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that I
0: can because there's so many like good things about all of that that you just said. But let's go real quick to I mean that that has been a challenge for me to create courses and stuff like that i don't think people realize the difficulty and the deep 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 thought that you have to do to present things like you said in a way that makes sense to people that put all of the background pieces together. And, and then you have to distill it down to like, what's the most important thing for somebody that's new versus somebody that is a little bit more of an intermediate or even advanced. That's, that's a completely different thing. So so when you were first doing that that course, did you have the new newer pelvic floor physical therapist in mind or were you guys just sort of doing it so that you guys could all get your <laughs>
2: your head straight around stuff. Well, I told you the first course is like, well, I'm going to invite this person, this person, and I want to hear what they say, because I don't know. I mean, I think one of the main things is the pelvic floor assessment and how to teach that. And, and. I was involved with the APTA section on OBGYN, helping them write the first policy statement that said that was just that pelvic floor examination was in the scope of our practice. Oh, geez, right? Because that, that <laughs> even think about you that. You have to like even remember that. You know, I called Florence Kindle. I said, "Hey, do you have any manual muscle testing for the pelvic floor?" And they're like, "No." <laughs> and so the APTA section also. Sp- Sponsored Joe Laycock in 1992. And before there was that regional director of education, I organized Joe Laycock to come to the United States. And I think she went to three different locations. I can't even remember. It was 1992. But, you know, this idea of bringing in experts so we can understand where other countries have been compared to how, quote unquote, behind we really were in the United States. unfortunately, probably still are still in a are, lot yeah. of areas of health. health. Yes. So that idea of bringing in experts is so important. Now back to your question or your thought of like, yeah, how do you put together ideas and thoughts? It's like, yeah, well, wait, we don't even have a policy statement. <laughs> Who's done what? Joe Laycock in the UK Paul Pauline Chirelli down under in Australia? How can we look at their information? And the thing about teaching in the late 80s was, there was really very little strong evidence. And so it made us go off of our clinical experiences and practice. And, you know, our experience in practice is always ahead of evidence seven, 10 years, even longer. I mean, I'll never forget in 1991, the OB brought down this article. It said, it says here that like verbal instruction for Kegel isn't very good. And this is what you told us four years ago. (laughs) I go, well, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we're we're not on the same program always, right? (laughs) So I think that what we see and what we learn and what we assess in our day to day practice, is way ahead. And if we have to get stuck in what the evidence is, we can't be creative enough to treat what's actually in front of us because. So many times all those studies have all these exclusion criterias and I'm like, well, wait, you have all these other things as well. And you don't really match what the evidence population was in that study. So, right.
1: I love that you're, and there's so much that I have on my notes here to go back and I know we're not going to get to it all, but I love that phrase like stuck in evidence because I feel like as an outside observer of the field and someone who's been in research in other areas There seems to be like this obsession almost in the pelvic PT field with the, what's the evidence for that? And we have to have every single thing supported and and evidence-based. And I love that you phrase it as stuck in evidence because that really is just protocol based. If you're going to go straight by evidence, you have to go off of the protocol, the step-by-step things that's laid out in that research and you've said it now a couple of times, it stifles creativity when we're stuck in evidence like that.
0: And then we forget that the person's in front of us too, where it's like, gosh, and isn't that like why we got all got into physical therapy? Like we're mm-hmm. all people, people. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's, but it's both. I mean, the evidence, like you said, is also important to sort oh, of absolutely. follow up, I mean, right?
2: I mean, but yeah, I love that. And Quick. again, teaching in the early days, it was sort of like, well, this is what we know about regular muscle. How can we apply it to what's happening with the pelvic floor and see what our results are? That's really important. And plus, how can we look at the whole body? I mean, when I started too, there was a lot of like, what's a physical therapist doing treating incontinence or pelvic floor things like that's not in your scope of practice. And (laughs) I actually, you know, I am, went and marketed to urologists, and they sent me, she said, I'm going crazy with my pain patients, I kind of understand what I could do, I could do surgery on this, you know, woman with incontinence, I don't really want to, so I want them to try alternative techniques, I mean, I live in Seattle, we hug trees, we wear Birkenstocks, you know, (laughs) (laughs) nobody wants surgery, Uh, (laughs) I think that's pretty universal, though, that's not the first choice for a lot of women, so she sent me these pain patients, and I actually just talked to her a couple of weeks ago and she said, it was, I realized that your approach was more than the pelvic floor when the patient came back and told me that the way I told her to stand or move was the most impactful thing on her pain rather than just letting go of her pelvic floor muscles or knowing what was going on with them. So making impact on physicians and them realizing where we, what our scope of practice and what we do, I think is a huge mission for our profession. Yeah. Can
1: you talk about, because I think we glossed over this and I think some of our listeners are almost maybe as flabbergasted as I am, but realizing that you actually had to fight for the expansion to the scope of practice in order to be comfortable doing an internal exam and have that clearly, I feel like everybody just takes for granted, like, Oh, that's something that PTs can do. And you had to actually fight for that. Could you talk to us a little bit more about.
2: Well, it wasn't a fight. It was a well, let's get a policy statement. And this is the evaluation of treatment of muscle function. And it doesn't say that there's an exclusion of one part of the body. So we just wanted to have the foundation of, yes, this is within our scope. And the fight, what, it's not really a fight. It was like physicians understanding our profession. So I guess that's a fight in some ways, because yep. I think it's an ongoing effort that we have to make. But to your point, there wasn't anybody that says,
0: no, you guys shouldn't be doing that. You didn't encounter that, correct? It's more... What are you doing here? Not, (laughs) not don't. Okay. Got it. Oh, interesting. There was much more about what are you doing here? Not, you can't be here, but it was just more of like confusion around our scope and what we could actually do for patients. Is that more of what your experience was? Exactly. Exactly.
1: Because at that point, oh, it seems like, did you feel like there was an evolution there of because in just looking back and and this is so why I'm so excited to talk to you because like we've read all of the research and, and all of the timeline, but it seemed like there was a shift right around that time from pelvic PT is there to help women not leak after childbirth to just an explosion of the realization of what pelvic PT, the scope of what that could help with from chronic pain to prolapse to all of those different things. Do you have a sense of like when that happened and what were the really driving factors in how that idea expanded? In
2: 1998, I believe, the NIH had a call to research on global ideas about pelvic floor dysfunction. And so the whole area was really starting to expand. It's like, wait a minute, this is a huge problem. We're spending lots of money on surgery and diapers and pain meds and all these other things, but we're not really getting to the root of the problem. So I believe that, you know, it was before 2000 that at least they were calling the research and bringing in the issues. And then the Urogynecology Association was probably one of the first to say, hey, you know, these physical therapists have some ideas. And we know that all our patients Can't necessarily benefit from surgery, nor do they want it. The whole concept of it exploding, the question is as we educated more physical therapists, did the scope of practice expand? And I'd like to believe it to be that way, but I'm not sure of the real answer to that. I do know that pain confuses physicians the most and when you go in with a sound foundation a background in like well it's the musculoskeletal system how can we work with it you know have you heard about musculoskeletal physical for your patients you know it's and that may include like how they stand how they move all these things in their life, because what we're looking at is what's the meaningful task that this pain is limiting? And how can we help you do the meaningful things in your life? That's a long winded answer to what you said. I hope it helped.
1: No, absolutely. I just think that that's fascinating. And I think it's so interesting. I think that those of us, and I include myself in this and to a certain extent, Nicole, but certainly like newer grads don't have a sense of that history or that evolution of the field. You know, it didn't just pop out that you can, you know, do all of the different things that we can help people with. I mean, we think about the the variety of diagnoses that come into the clinic and that just wasn't what you guys were seeing at the start of this field.
0: Right. Exactly.
2: And, you know, I think still, pelvic health is, it's not standard curriculum. So it does require extra learning. I mean, what I did was I went to the midwives and I said, show me how you do a pelvic floor assessment, because that's the OB said to come to you and, and you'd showed me. And so I go in and they're like, well, you put your fingers here and you squeeze. And I said, that's it. I said, well, are you going to do the left side and the right side? Because there's a nerve from each side. And she looks at me sort of flabbergasted. And then I thought, oh, boy, we have a lot to offer here. How do you look at them? What's the sensory? What's the motor? What's, you know, there's so many things that were just not there. That We kind of had to go back to, again, going back to the basics and applying them to the pelvic floor.
0: Right. All of the dermatomes, myotomes, all of that, is it coming from the back? And all of that stuff was, gosh, like, again, stuff that we take for granted now, and frankly, sometimes miss as well, right? Where, Mm -hmm. again, we've talked a little bit about like being a really myopic view of the pelvic floor, but then also part of our part of our scope of practice, part of our job is to make sure that we're also checking off a lot of other boxes to make sure that, that we're capturing the true picture of what the, the dysfunction is.
2: Right. There's always, um Holly and I tried to talk about like, well, what's in front of you should always have a musculoskeletal assessment, but those words sort of fell off, I think, in the midst of overwhelm of learning, learning so many new things. I always used to say, you're in a con ed course, but how many of you, is this continuing education or is it brand new education? You know, and like, everybody's like, oh yeah, it's not con ed, it's new ed. And because of that, there are no dumb questions and it's important to get your questions answered. But the problem is, there's way more questions than time, and I still have questions. I still think I'm not sure about that. I wonder if that's the right answer. Well, what's going to work the best? You know, yeah. these are things that still happen every day. <laughs> so, Woody, where do you want to go? I have.
1: I have. A question about that I've kind of just wondered, and I've put this to a couple of different PTs, and you said something earlier about one of the reasons and things that you love about physical therapy is the opportunity for creativity. I was just wondering, do you see physical therapy and working with patients, is that more of an art or is that more of a science? Like, How do you (laughs) differentiate that? Do you come down on one side or the other?
2: It is not more of one or the other. To me, it's the foundation of science and the art of applying it. So in lots of ways, how you interact with the person in front of you is an art. And also how you take what you know and say, what will work for this person compared to someone else? I think that's the art part. The science has to be there. And we all have that training we can't do what we do without the science and the understanding of it. And so I really think it's too much of a combo to say one or the other.
1: I love that answer. The foundation of science and the art of applying it. And that, I love that. And just as a follow-up then, that also has to influence then how you teach physical therapy, right? How does that influence like the, the actual teaching process for you?
2: You know, some of it's innate, I think I have a teaching gene. (laughs) I also have a entrepreneur gene. You know, my father like did plastics in in the 50s and 60s. (laughs) So, you know, like creating an idea and doing something on your own is important to me. But the idea of applying information The the hardest thing to teach is a beginning class. I realized that because you have to know what is the next level. And that's why one of the reasons Holly and I started like teaching more and deciding to start Herman Wallace was that there's a lot more to teach and there's only two of us to do this. And there's so many days in the year to really put together these levels of learning What is really foundational? How can I get somebody started versus helping them expand? Having written a lot of these courses, I learned from, again, midwives. I learned from Joe Laycock. I learned from Pauline Chirelli. I took a class from Kari Bo. But I think everybody's approach to it is different. The biggest thing I think is that You need to leave room for individual differences and understanding the basics. I keep going back to that. It's like, these are the basics. What you learn from here will expand. You'll decide where you're going based on what type of patients show up in front of you. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now, can we talk a little bit about that, the levels of of courses, because in your experience, because what I feel like there's a trend now, uh, because this field is expanding pretty darn, I mean, fast, fast now, I think there's this, oh, let me take the level one course. And then sometimes nothing after that for quite some time, maybe never a rectal examination course.
2: And you know, I'll pause right there. Um, If I had it to do over again, yeah. Can you talk to me (laughs) (laughs) if you don't mind? I love it. I think you have to realize also that creating and organizing a course takes marketing, business sense, all that. And both Holly Herman and I are teachers and clinicians, so the first courses I taught on my own in the 90s were sponsored by biofeedback companies because they had an interest in promoting their equipment. And I strongly felt that it was a great tool for what I said, but I'm not just teaching that if you want me to teach biofeedback, I'm not teaching your class, because I have to teach how to assess the muscle as well. I mean, uh, this is a great other piece of history. I'm just going to throw it in, you know, started with biofeedback, you know, the whole thing was like, oh, you can have the patient walk down the hall, put the sensor in and then walk back. (laughs) The patient said, aren't you going to look? <laughs> I thought, huh, interesting concept. <laughs> you know, maybe, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe I should, because, you know, I didn't start with that. And then, you know, like, did they put it in the right place? <laughs> I have one patient actually put it in the wrong orifice (laughs) or the other orifice. So it's like, wait a minute. So that's my little segue of biofeedback. But the point is that with them helping with the business and that there is a little bit more emphasis on the biofeedback. And if I had it to do over, I, I, you know, it's like, is one orifice too many? Are It's just enough to learn in the beginning, or should you really look at the whole perineum in the first class and really learn a basic rectal assessment and a basic vaginal assessment and then divide from there? So I know that they're actually doing that in Canada, and I applaud them for doing that because, you know, it's sort of like, well... I remember the insurance company said it's like pelvic floor dysfunction left or right side you know cuz all the extremities It's like oh, nice. to me it's like well you're treating the top of the pelvic floor? <laughs> only the anterior part but not the posterior part wait a minute they're all connected totally. and so you know and in childbirth the tear goes <laughs> from the vagina <laughs> downward so it's hard to really delineate that and Yeah, I think if I had it to do all over again, one hole isn't enough. We thought it might be too much to do that. But, you know, it's just everybody learns differently as well. So the level of comfort with just like, wow, I'm currently looking at someone's perineum. I've actually never done this before or... One of the classic things I used to say when I taught is, you know, I noticed my patient's attitude is like, there's something wrong with, and they would whisper bladder, you know, like <laughs> it's a secret. And so <laughs> that was the the cue for me to like, when we were teaching early on, I said, the first thing you have to do is stand in front of the mirror and say vagina, rectum, all these things, and look at what you look like. You know, like I'm going to treat your rectum, and you know, and then their eye, you know, their bodies cinching, and they're they're just they're scared, and so the patient starts to be scared. So I mean, yeah. there's so you know, much and to I
0: that. I don't know if you know this. I know we met in person at CSM. I feel like I maybe told you this, but I'll tell you again. So I took. Herman and Wallace won from you in 2007. And I had the luxury at that time of my hospital program paying for almost your full series really quickly. So I think I took everything like within a few months of each other, which I think looking back in retrospect, I was like, I mean, my eyes were like big. I didn't even know. I can, I will never, (laughs) it was a lot. I will never forget. Like when we were all sitting and I actually took it up in, in Seattle, we were sitting at these tables and you basically were like, okay, now the person sitting next to you can be your partner. And I was like, I wait, partner for what? Like, (laughs) Aren't you gonna bring in like some of those pain people that we can all feel? So I mean, I think for me it it was both overwhelming, but looking back now, I feel like that was amazing that I got kind of all of it so that I can then tease through. And then I happen to have a good mentor when I got back that I could then bounce things off of um, from what I learned from you guys. And I took 2A with Holly as well. So it was really. I feel like really fortunate to have learned from you guys back in the day. But if somebody was just starting pelvic floor right now, what would you say with the current, I mean, I'm sure you're kind of well-versed in the current structure, both of APTA and the current Herman and Wallace, what would you say would be like a good interval of courses? Do you, can you even say?
2: (laughs) Well, first of all, you do need to take ones that do examination, internal examination, internal examination, 100%. So it is a challenge to know if I you know, it's about different learning styles. And so I think a physical therapist knows their best learning style. And I'm a, I got to do it learner. And you go you practice, you experience it, you see what you don't No. And then you go on to the next thing, getting a lot of information, a lot of foundation. If you had a mentor, I think that's great. But if you just keep taking courses, I wonder if you're not going to dive in sometime, you know, right. We all had our first patient our first patient, I mean, I remember my first patient, I'm sure most of us do. But our first pelvic floor patient also has that possibility. And you just say where you're starting. And people are so delighted that there's someone there to help them. I think that's what we have to remember, rather than thinking, I don't think I know it all. And there's just too much to know, but we know where to go for the resources. And, and now at least we have some ways to interact with resources. Um, we could talk about social media and the pros and cons, uh, but at least there's some places where we can go to get questions answered or ideas reinforced or negated when we're, when we're in a beginning part of practice. I'm sort of a Nike kind of person. You gotta just do it. I mean, at some point, hundred percent. You know, if you think you have to have everything lined up, I mean, I'd like to just say that I didn't, (laughs) and I think that I had a very successful clinical practice, and it helped me understand by doing. And so, again, some people are much more booky and much more they have to have all the answers before they move forward. So I think it's more individual differences. I believe that, The levels could go to, uh, you know, 2,551. I I don't think we can just stop, (laughs) you know, like, oh, this is the capstone. I don't believe that there's a capstone in our profession right now. And you have to think about, well, when were the tests written that I'm being examined on? And how old are they? And what are they actually asking that's going to help me? understand my practice? Or is it just a confirmation of my knowledge base? So, I mean, every course is just how much you put into it. And we know from education that sometimes, you know, three or four things, if you go away from in a two day course, if you take those and apply them, you're doing really well. And so (laughs) it's like, wait, did you take the beginning course again. Did you reassess? Did you rethink? Did you, I didn't teach it the same in 07 as I did in 2015. I mean, there's some basics, but there's also some some progression on on what we do and how we do it.
0: Yeah, that's so, actually a really good reminder to potentially revisit some of that stuff. I haven't retaken any the, some of that <laughs> basic stuff, to be quite honest. So that's actually a really good.
2: It's a thought. I mean, yeah, a thought, I, a rem-
0: just to remember, like it's it wouldn't be a waste to retake something if if the instructor's good and they and they're changing the way that they're presenting the information, then then yeah, heck yeah.
2: Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I sort of transitioned into teaching more advanced class right now is that I wanted to go back to the basics but present it in a more, like, I didn't have to want to go over the indications and contraindications of a pelvic floor assessment. That takes a good hour of time (laughs) to really say, you know, these are your boundaries, these are your limits, these are your things you can do. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to start looking at it like more of a whole body approach and how can we take what we know or some basic anatomy and apply it further, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, if you're not a lifelong learner, you probably don't belong in pelvic health. To me, you shouldn't be in the profession, but you know, that's, (laughs) that's uh, my bias is that there's so much changing and so much learning to do.
0: Yeah. And I feel like the foundational commitment for everybody to have that, commitment as a lifelong learner is more of like a, almost like a, a pledge to your patients a little bit. Like you're as, if you're going to take that on, then I'm pledging to my, every patient that is going to be the future in my future that I will promise to continue to learn and get better at my craft. You know, I feel like if we get stuck and stagnant, it's only going to hurt patients in addition to make our lives boring, right? It's fun to like learn.
2: <laughs> Where's the creativity, right? Yeah, right.
0: That's awesome. Well, and talk to me, cause you
1: mentioned a little bit about this on about certificates earlier. And I know this is one of Nicole's bugaboos. Um, <laughs> now that, now, I mean, sh- when you were starting off, I'm sure there weren't any cer- or not much at all in the way of certification. Now everybody wants to go and, and it's, Oh, do I need the cap or the PRPC or the WCS and, you know, I remember Nicole being so frustrated by those WCS questions that were written 25 years ago. Oh, or
2: yeah, I haven't taken any of these tests. So uh, yeah, so- <laughs> not-
1: <laughs> that's, a, that's a great, I, I love hearing you say that too, because like you can obviously be an incredible physical therapist, an incredible educator and not have any of these certifications. You could also have certifications and not necessarily be a lifelong learner. Can you just talk a little bit about like, as you see those, And people kind of holding those up in the field of like, oh, are you certified in this? Are you, how does that, I don't know if I have a really coherent question there, but I hope that's enough. No, no, no.
2: (laughs) It is a coherent question. And I think the biggest challenge and problem with any advanced certification and looking at it, and my argument always was, you have to. Watch them do it, and you have to assess them, and you have to grade them in person. and And when I took my cardiopulmonary certification, I was doing the Bruce protocol and reading EKGs in front of the testers. And so it's like, oh yeah, that's a fib. Uh, let's do this. <laughs> yeah, oops, <laughs> that person is not doing well. And so they knew I knew how to make a clinical assessment. The thing is that. Book knowledge and clinical application, I don't know how they always intersect, but lots of people like to rise to the challenge of taking a test and knowing that they accomplished or have a a foundation, that base of knowledge. But it still doesn't tell me that if I put a person in front of them, they would know what to do. Right. Right.
0: Right, so yeah, because so I, I mean, I have my WCS. I took it. I think it was more of like a an achievement thing for me. Like, oh, that's like the the pinnacle of what our association or whatever deems Mm -hmm. the highest level of advancement. And I'm like, okay, cool. Well, I'm gonna get that because I always do that. (laughs) But (laughs) but yeah, but I think when I after I started to treat more and more patients, then it was kind of like, oh, well, that actually doesn't really mean anything clinically and then i was like gosh what do i even think about this at all you know and it, yeah, i don't know so overall i think what would you say then about someone that says well i want to go for my insert certification
2: then they should go for it <laughs> i really you know it is a a foundation of feeling <laughs> I do have to admit that I think that, I mean, when I actually got my cardiopulmonary certification, I got a pay raise at the hospital that I worked at Mm. because I had done an advanced training. And so is there a motivation? That wasn't why I was doing it, but I knew that that was a component of what would happen if I passed. And so, you know, there may be motivators for people outside of that and, It depends on where they're coming from to see what would happen with that.
1: It's so interesting to hear you guys talking about this because I think you guys are making very similar points of if you're going to go for a certification, you need to know and have a reason for that. It's not that patients have any idea what that is. Most physicians don't know or care what that is. Right. I think there's these these glorified views of these different things. Oh people are gonna care that there are these letters after my name, but nobody knows the difference between the c a w p and the c s c s and one of those is like a literally like a weekend thing yeah. that like my trainer at the l a fitness has right? <laughs> it's just letters to most right. people outside the well, field. you
2: know there's, there's the, the argument party. of alphabet soup and right. you know how many things can you put after your name anymore, or what should you put after your name and I never had anybody ask me if I was certified or anything, but, you know, I, I did start out and I did get a good foundation from and support from the local physicians. And then it turned into word of mouth and then it just kind of exploded. It's like when the patient said, well, the woman at the gym, well, while we were changing, said that I should come see you. I'm like, wow, <laughs> you know, like, like, really? <laughs> totally.
1: Nicole, what a fascinating conversation! That is crazy to just hear some of those stories from the early beginnings of the field and. I think so often we take it for granted where the field is right now, but it wouldn't be there without pioneers like Kathy and the people that she worked with early on here.
0: Yeah, man. I just feel like every pelvic PT listening needs to sort of remember this always, that you know, for every time that we complain that someone doesn't know about pelvic PT enough or some OBGYN doesn't refer to us enough, if it weren't for people like Kathy, then we wouldn't have a specialty practice at all.
1: Yes. So absolutely love that conversation. Kathy has very, very generously. She has some amazing stuff on her website. Everybody should head over and check it out. It's kathywallace.com. We're going to have a link in the show notes. She has very generously offered to do a discount code for pelvic PT rising. We're going to put that in the notes as well for her spring and summer session of her pelvic floor support systems course. But she just has a ton of great resources, courses, free stuff over there for practitioners. I would highly, highly encourage you guys to head over and check it out. And we're just really so grateful for Kathy for taking the time. So feel free, please, guys, if you're listening to this, share this spread the news about this because it is so important to hear some of these stories from the very beginnings of the field. Yeah, man. All right. Well, let's keep this conversation going.
0: And let's continue to rise.